0: next set of buildings we have to replace these because these are uh, um, trailers basically seven trailers that were pulled up and hooked together to make this room these rooms um, but they only <laughs> last modular buildings a certain time and they start to fall apart so we're trying to create as we have this beautiful retreat hall um, uh, a really good community space for our community and for the also the things that happen in the community in this the, the valley here so So let yourself sit comfortably and um, I'd like to speak tonight um, in a way that I hope is relevant and useful to you and let yourself listen. The things that seem helpful or that are reminders to your heart of some understanding or wisdom, um, please take them. The rest of it, let it go. This is Retreat centers are not, and meditation centers aren't so much the place to get stuff. They're really more like the dump. They're actually, they're the place to leave stuff when you sit, so that you can then go back and have a beginner's mind, that you can go back with some openness and freshness to the experiences of your life. And what I'd like to do tonight is to tell some stories from the journey that I just completed, uh, I got back a few days ago from spending some time in Israel and Palestine. Um, And uh, I want to illustrate the stories in a certain way um, with some of the traditional Buddhist teachings because I feel like there's a connection. And in, in doing so, I hope that the circumstances in the, people that I describe there will resonate with the humanity and the circumstances of your own life because we're really not very different and in fact we're not separate from them Um, and we're interconnected and it becomes more and more apparent this interconnection in the world as uh, um, the years uh, go by for us. So I've been hoping and planning to go to um spend some time in uh, Israel and in Palestine and the Middle East for some years and then this year a bit of time opened up for my, my first uh, visit there, um, having completed some big projects here. And so with not a lot of notice I contacted some folks that I'd heard about who were involved in the peace work between Arabs and uh, Israelis and, and in that part of the world and people who are involved in the meditative and contemplative disciplines. And my sense in going was not to waltz in and do some great kind of teaching. As I said when I got there, you know, you've had the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and the Pope and George Bush. <laughs> and you know, it hasn't really solved your problems. so, I mean, I don't have much to add to that one way or the other. Um, I really more wanted to go and listen, um, but in listening I ended up feeling that I was able actually to contribute, as you'll see in some ways, um, and in that way it felt very rewarding. So I arrived and in that, in this short period of time, two, three weeks, an incredible amount of things were packed in, it felt like an entire lifetime. Um, I arrived and I went immediately to the old city of Jerusalem, um, where I stayed. And of course, Jerusalem is this um, is this amazing and magic place, especially the old city with the walls around it that's been there for um, at a minimum of three or four thousand years and perhaps considerably longer. And the the guides, the first guides, who took me around quite a bit after I got into my little hotel that I was staying I went the next day to visit um, uh, Eliyahu McLean, who is a um, uh, a Jewish Scotsman. You know, he's got a kind of a a yarmulke and a kilt on, basically. Um, And head of the Jerusalem Peacemakers, and a really remarkable and wonderful guy. And his cohort is uh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz uh, Bukhari, Um, who is a spiritual leader of the Naqshbandi Sufis um, whose family has been in the old city, in the Arabic quarter of the old city for almost 500 years. His great-great-great-great-great-grandfather decided it was time to come from the Silk Road to Jerusalem to offer the Sufi teachings of the holiness of all, the holiness of everyone and every tradition and every vision that that the Sufis as as the mystical carriers of Islam um, uh, offer so beautifully. Rumi's teachings are you know, from the Sufi mystical tradition and Hafez and so forth. Um, and so I go over to the sheikh's house. Um, it was this amazing compound, the only little private cemetery in Jerusalem, and the little tiny private olive grove and all his great <laughs> ancestor sheikhs are buried there. Um, and there was... Immediately, there was this interfaith gathering with Bishop Swing from the Grace Cathedral, who I know from other work. Who is, he's just coming back from Africa and Eritrea doing peace work in Africa, and one of the heads of the Lebanese Druze um, community and various other players in the interfaith peace movement um, weaving together the environment, saying, not only do we have to care for one another, but given what's happening with global warming and all the rest, we have to understand that one another includes the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the, you know, the inhabitants of the desert. It was a very beautiful meeting. And then the sheikh says, and Eliyahu says, all right, we're going to take you around and give you a sense of the peacemaking work and the reconciliation work that's happening in the, uh, in the Holy Land, if you will. So we get in the car. And um, let's say a little bit more about uh, Sheikh Bukhari. Um, he's about my age, early 60s, and he didn't want to become a spiritual teacher. So he ran away to California in 1968, <laughs> came came to Haight-Ashbury, um, and lived in the U- US for t- 20 years or so. And then as his father got sick, he went back and did the whole training for a long time to become a spiritual leader, and, and now is very much so a very deep and beautiful, big-hearted teacher. So we get in the car, um, Eliyahu and the sheikh and I, and he says, okay, we're gonna take you places that people don't usually get to go, which means we have to go through all these checkpoints because we're gonna go around the West Bank and all these various places. And, of course, to go these different places, um, you have to, uh, or they seem to have to change costume. That is, we'd go through an Israeli checkpoint, and the sheikh would take off his cafe and his Arabic stuff. And he had his Swiss embassy pass where he had worked for, for a while and his kind of diplomatic thing and look very straight. You know, And Eliyahu would put on his yarmulke keeper and do his whole Jewish thing, look like a settler. We'd get through and say, OK, Eliyahu, quick change. And Eliyahu would put on his baseball cap to hide his yarmulke. And the sheikh would put on his sheikh's thing. You know, And OK, well, we're coming up to the Palestinians. And then meanwhile, the sheikh says to Eliyahu, we need music for this. Santana, I think, right? <laughs> so we're cruising through the checkpoints. But then he said, okay, we gotta go down to the Dead Sea, you know, and there's this amazing thing, we're gonna go to Jericho, but what do we need for the Dead Sea? Hey, the Dead, okay, put on Jerry, right? <laughs> so we're we're cruising through the checkpoints, and these guys are some combination of the, the Marx brothers and James Bond, you know. And here's places we know how to get around this checkpoint, and these guys have guns, but we know how to go this way, you know, and okay, change costume now, you know. And then they took me to meet the most wonderful and remarkable array of people. Um, The Sheikh himself had recently come back from Gaza, which as you know is kind of a pressure cooker for the poor people of Gaza and what's been happening there with Hamas uh, um, winning military control of Gaza and then the Israeli government and military trying to enclose that and so forth. And he said when I went Previous years, I've gone, there hasn't been many people in the, in the Sufi mosque, he said, but now people are so fed up with politics. He said the mosque was full of people that wanted some alternative to the madness of these two sides. Um, and what you see there um, in traveling around, and I will, again, tell the stories of the various people and, and uh, w- what I met, um, was... Uh, Uh, this kind of polarity that we also experience in our country of those who are caught in a kind of propaganda about the other side and the enemy and the other one side or other there's a lot of that and then those who are really living from a kind of humanity of their heart and whatever side it happened to be where the sides get dropped and instead it's just us and there's a lot of propaganda I mean before I went people said oh don't go to the West Bank you know don't go are, are you gonna be safe it's propaganda. It was completely safe. It was absolutely fine. You could go and people would show you around and people are incredibly generous and gracious throughout Israel and throughout the West Bank and Palestine. Um, and um, most of what I will talk about is not in the media at all. The media really likes the, you know, cowboys and Indians, basically. <laughs> it does. That's, And so this other web of reality is very... Uh, it is very much alive and very hopeful, but invisible. So, um, if you read in the Dhammapada, which are the verses of the, the kind of of the awakened utterances of the Buddha, um, it begins with the verse: "Mind is the forerunner of all things. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we create our world. Speak or act." with an impure heart and mind, and sorrow or trouble will follow you as closely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure heart and mind, and happiness will follow you as closely as your own shadow, unshakable. So getting there and then having these teachings, wandering around the old city especially, you could really see the truth of we are what we think. Because a lot of Jerusalem, not to speak of a lot of America and all of the things that we're involved in, whether it's internationally or within the differences of our own community, is based on the ideas we have of ourselves and others. Um, You might call it identity politics. And I've never been in any place where there was stronger belief in identity than in Jerusalem. You know, there's the Armenian quarter and the Christian quarter and the Arab quarter and the Jewish quarter, you know, and I began to think it was a little bit like gangs because I've worked with gang kids in L.A., (laughs) right, in the Crips and the Bloods, because looking the way I do um, and being slightly theatrical, Um. (laughs) I got some costumes and I had a Turkish hat, and people would talk to me in Turkish, and then I'd switch, and I'd put a little Jewish yarmulke thing on, and they'd speak to me in Hebrew. Then I'd put my keffiyeh on, they'd speak to me in Arabic. I couldn't understand other than salam, you know, alechem, and you know, and i put on this Russian hat, and the the people would speak to me in Russian. But depending on which hat or scarf I wore, it was like the Crips and the Bloods. Okay, you're in that gang, you know, and we know how to treat you. And if you wore a kaffiyeh and looked Arabic and went into the Jewish quarter, it was like just like going in the wrong territory in you know Watts or East Los Angeles where there's a lot of gang territory. You know, you you might be actually in danger. When people treat you, and it felt that way. It was like, and I thought, wait a second, you know, grow up, you guys. <laughs> um, there was so strongly a sense of identity of who is our people and our history, whichever p- particular people and a tremendous loyalty to suffering. This this is a very interesting Dharma teaching, um, because we do have our personal history, and we have our traumas, and they need to be recognized, and honored, and worked with. When you sit in meditation, you experience them. But if we make that our identity, if we make our history our identity, there is no possibility of freedom. We're bound like the Northern Irish Protestant Catholics to say, well, in 1644, you, your people marched through our neighborhood and dissed our people and burned our church, so now we're gonna do that in 19, whatever it happens to be, and and it, there's no end to it. And you could feel the kind of victimology that was there. It was quite extraordinary, The the loyalty to suffering and the the way that people would categorize one another. And, of course, there is tremendous trauma. There's been, you know, decades or centuries of violence, of dispossession, of oppression, of theft, on every side, in all these parts. I mean, you talk to the Armenians, and then you have to deal with the Turkish, the, with the Armenian genocide that happened at the turn of the century. Everybody has some painful part of history, and it is heartrending. It's so deep. And yet at the same time, who are we? You know, people would ask me, Are you, are you Jewish? And I'd say, Well, I'm certainly born Jewish and I have this whole you know, Jewish family and identity. But I would say, as Ramdas used to say, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side, right? <laughs> and there's something really important about that. Um, it says in the Buddhist teachings, the texts begin, O oh, nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And if, if we take our identity um, to be completely who we are, then we end up in fundamentalist ways, which we all know about. But if we see that that's a piece of our identity that needs to be respected, everybody's culture and ethnicity and you know orientation, all those things, can be loved and and respected, but it's not who we are in our deepest essence. And when we lose sight of that in ourselves, we suffer. And when we lose sight of it in others, we suffer, and we cause suffering. So then, you know, I spent time just trying to listen to how all this was playing out and, and the kind of fear that gets communicated when people believe in those identities even though actually they're all especially in in in, you know the Abrahamic tradition of Islam and Christianity and Judaism I mean they're all children of Abraham you know and I went to the I'll tell later I went to the tomb of Abraham you know and one half of it is the mosque and one half of it is and then these all these guys with their their guns and stuff and the other half of the building is the the Jewish temple you know and of course and and our sheikh got us through all of that and kind of from one side to another. But you can't, ordinarily you can't go from one side to another. Um, But let's see, and then I started to think, okay, there's Isaac and Ishmael, there's Cain and Abel, there's um, Jacob and Esau. Oh, these guys have been at it for a really long time and they like to fight. I mean, there was really a... So the next verse from the Dhammapada where the Buddha says in this most profound way in this world hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed this is the ancient and eternal law He says look how he abused me beat me he threw me down and robbed me continue such thoughts and live in hate live in suffering look how he abused me beat me threw me down and robbed me abandon such thoughts and live in love, live in freedom. So we've all suffered, each of us, in our different ways. And what do we do with that suffering? The suffering can either ennoble us, or it can perpetuate the cycles of hatred into yet another generation. And one of the groups of people that I met with going into Ramallah um, was the um, Combat Veterans for Peace. I met this beautiful man named uh, in Bethlehem, too, and in Ramallah, Um, one trying to remember the last name, Suleiman Al, I don't remember his last name, and another fellow, who was one of the founders of it, and another fellow, Ahmed. Um, And Ahmed was telling his story, and he said, you know, I was a soldier on the Palestinian side. And he said, you know, I felt like we'd lost everything, and I had to protect my family and my people and so forth. And he said, but when my two younger brothers died, he said, I just lost heart. I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't shoot another person. I could not do it. Um, And he was one of the people that founded Combatants for Peace and made some tentative bridges to a group of Israeli veterans who were coming out of the army in Israel, and the same good heart saying, I simply can't do this anymore. and so we talked together about what that would mean, and then in in their office, there were these. There was a whole strategy board, like you see at any nonprofit. Let's see, how do we get each other to stop seeing one another as enemies? Um, how do we hear the sorrows from one side to another? How do we make genuine dialogue between these people who have been so estranged from one another? And part of what's interesting is not so much that the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or whoever it happens to be has gone there to offer teachings, but that some of the skillful means that have come through Dharma understanding and Western consciousness have started to spread in both Palestine and Israel. For example, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. All around people were using that. And counsel, which is taught by Jack and Jacqueline Zimmerman from Ohio, a way of sitting in a circle and holding a talking piece and listening respectfully to one another. And the Palestinian and the Israeli side, both people were sitting in counsel and holding a talking piece and listening to one another. And Mindfulness practices were being used. So the the principles of our meditation and the principles of training how to listen to one another, to undo the hatred that never ends by hatred, to undo that cycle of violence, which really starts in the heart, were being used there. And it was beautiful to see and quite inspiring. And what you'll see as I go on is that under the radar of the media is uh, um, Indra's net of goodness. Indra's net is an image from the Indian cosmology of the world being woven together like a net. And at each juncture in the net is a jewel, the jeweled net of Indra. And this crystal or this jewel in every place where the, where the net meets reflects all the other jewels in the net. And somehow there was, there was literally hundreds of groups of people doing amazing reconciliation and forgiveness and bridging work that, doesn't, that even in the Israeli media is mostly invisible. Um, And one of the things I realized that I could do, I didn't do very much there, but was to come back. I've already been talking to some more of the major American media and begin to tell some of these stories that you will hear. So next verse from the Dhammapada. However many holy words you read, however many you speak, what good will they do you if you do not act on them? Are you a shepherd who counts another person's sheep? Read as few words as you need. Speak fewer, but act from the heart. Give up the old ways of enmity, of folly. Know the truth in yourself and bring peace to all you touch. Very simple, universal teachings. You could read them really in any great wisdom tradition. However, many holy words. And part of what I began to encounter with the sheikh and Eliyahu and so forth was this web of people. Um, I met this beautiful Palestinian woman um, from Nablus whose um, work uh, is part of a Palestinian Israeli women's group called Beyond Words. Just what that, what that passage from the Dhammapada says. Words are one thing. Um, Take not Han's expression for it, he says, compassion is a verb. it it entails action. It's one thing to feel connected with another and it's another, it's the next step to realize not only do we feel with one another but we are one another so we respond in some way. So this woman from Nablus started beyond words and part of what they do is go and plant olive trees all in the places where they've been torn up and where they've been you know destroyed in the different parts of Palestine and Israel to rebuild among people the olive groves. And I went to visit a really interesting old rabbi, a settler named Rabbi Menachem Froman Um, and he was one of the people that I thought really (coughs) embodied this action rather than words. He had, like this Palestinian woman that I met, he had a very deep sense of humility. He looked like he was right out of Narnia or something like that with this long white beard and you know, right out of central casting, this rabbi. And he, he had this little settlement on a hilltop in Palestine, but he also um, was very, very open-minded. Um, and first he wanted to know about Buddhism. He said, I'm an Hasid and I hear that you have Emptiness in Buddhism. Tell me about Buddhist emptiness. What is that like? You know, We have emptiness too. Is your emptiness the same as our emptiness? <laughs> is it as big as ours? You know, and So we had this whole thing. Um, but then he talked about um, uh, an old Middle Eastern practice and partly an Arab practice called hudna, if I have the word right. Um, and it turned out that this settler rabbi Um, was good friends with the leadership of Hamas, which is running Gaza and so forth, as well as some people in the Israeli defense ministry. And in fact, he said, here's the document we've been working on the last two weeks to make a secret peace thing between Hamas and the Israeli military. And I said, okay, how do you do this? How do you get to talk to these people? And he said, well, this um, this is how it works. He said, first of all, he said, I'm not attached to this being Israel. He said, that's an idea. He said, this is just holy land, and it would be fine for me if the Palestinians have the state here. And for a 1,000 years, he said, the, the Jews and Christians um, lived um, in the golden era under in, the, in the Arabic world and were very well treated. Um, he said, so I tell him, I said, it's fine, you can run it. and I just want to be able to talk about my olive groves to my Palestinian neighbor and share what I know and learn from them. And I'm quite happy to be, you know, under a Palestinian government. Um, so the hudna is this. If there was some great rupture in the communities, in the Arabic communities, um, and uh, someone was killed or something terrible happened, there might be in the minds of the families or the people some notion of of revenge. Um, But instead, um, if there are wise leaders, they would come together and ask from one side or the other that we could sit and have a cup of coffee together. First cup of coffee was just a measure of dignity and respect. Your people have suffered. We are sorry about that. We want to come together and have coffee with you. Second cup of coffee is, let's talk about this a little further. How much have you suffered? How much you know um, has happened? Is there some way to find reconciliation? And if the person is willing to stay for the third cup of coffee, then you start to bargain a little bit. Well, OK, how many camels and goats? And you know, what will it take to make an apology and the right kind of restitution? Um, And what he was interested in was making a process like that of the cups of coffee between, not between the liberals, but between the most extreme fundamentalists on both sides, which he was somehow able to do because he had a lot of humility. And he simply wanted to listen. And he said, it's not the words, however many holy words, but it's the actions. What are we willing to offer to one another? And it sounded very much like in the Buddhist monasteries, the practice of pavarana, where you, if there's been a rupture in the community, where the elders gather and bring the people who've been in conflict and go through a step-by-step process of reconciliation. Um, Another verse from the Dhammapada, but I'll go back to that for a second. So this is really a reflection in our own practice. It's one thing to have our ideas and to have our words. What is the step that allows us to take the cup of coffee with the person that we're in conflict with and listen for a way through with our heart or to to find in our lives the capacity to let go of the ideas of things and drop beneath that to the deepest values and deepest longings so another verse from the Dhammapada says There we go. That's the right one. <laughs> I don't see it, but I think I remember it. Um, it says, "As a Fletcher um, straightens their arrows, as a carp as a carpenter smooths." The wood, as a farmer, brings water to their fields. Um, All of these who have skill in this way. um, Learn the skill of quieting your own mind. Learn to sit. Learn to follow your breath. Learn to quiet yourself. So I went with... um, a group of both uh, a Jewish and um, Israeli and Palestinian uh, friends to uh, Bethlehem, to the Gandhi Peace Center that was there, run by this man named Sami Awad. Um, Holy Land Trust, it was called. And one of the key questions that they asked um, there, they said, and I hear it over and over here at Spirit Rock, is, we are um, engaged as activists in in a world of a great deal of conflict and a great deal of aggression and and so forth. How do we keep our own hearts quiet and clear in the midst of all of this difficulty? How do you bring water to the parched land? Um, And they said, would you please teach us some meditation? So I did a series of teachings for the for the Gandhian people um, who were there. Um, and they said, we try and sit and meditate as Gandhi did before he did his salt march when they, all these hundreds of thousands of people went to the sea. And listen, what would our salt march be? What is a nonviolent way for the people here to express their longing and their need for, for, for peace and justice? So we sat for a while. And then part of what came from this was talking about the languages of contemplation and the inner life. Um, To talk about working with the breath or closing your eyes or meditating didn't turn out to be culturally quite as as straightforward and simple a translation as I might have imagined. But when we ask, well, what is it in your culture, in your language, uh, about silence, about quieting the mind? And they said, Oh, the desert. When you think about going out into the desert, then we understand silence. Or the walled garden. When you come in from the desert and you go in, and there's this little walled courtyard, and there's a fountain, and you know, and there's one palm tree or one date tree, and all of a sudden you have this feeling of the sacred space um, that is protected. And what was beautiful to hear was that they and we and everyone has an inner sense and an inner set of images of what it means to quiet the mind and open the heart. What is that really like? So for you, you know, I would ask this question, what is it like for you um, in your life or what are the images, if I were to say, when you think about the times in your life when you have really deeply been able to quiet yourself, to still the mind, to open the heart, uh, to come back to yourself. Where was that? What was that place? Or what is that circumstance? (coughs) And even as I begin to ask, you can sense it or feel it, or remember it if you look. And then you begin to recognize that you carry it in you that you carry the vastness of the desert or the inner courtyard with the fountain and the date tree, or whatever your particular place and sacred image is, that you're never at a distance from it. It is actually here with you. And in a certain way to meditate is just to come back and drop into this truth or this reality. Now, um, the next verse. Dhammapada, where um, the Buddhist says, A person is not born to mastery. And those who are masters are never proud. They don't talk down to others. They're not afraid. They neither see themselves as higher nor lower. They are free. So cut through the strap and the thong and the rope and unloose the fastenings and unbolt the doors of sleep and awake to liberation here and now." (coughs) Never proud. Um, One of the people that I met um, thinking of this kind of practice was an interesting fellow um, named uh, Khaled Mohammed, um, who had been educated as uh, first a businessman and then a lawyer in Europe. Um, uh, and then he realized, he said, he, he came back to uh, where he lived in the Galilee um, and in, in um, Palestine. And he said, I realize that if we don't see one another's suffering and we don't see one another's pain, um, then we're not really going to be able to help one another to heal. Um, and he said, I feel like everybody's been really arrogant about this one side or another. I have my truth. This has happened to me. This is worse than what happened to another. So he made his work. um, He's making his work, the work of trying to explain, first, the pain of the uh, Israeli Jews, and particularly of the Holocaust, to the Palestinians. And then the second step will be to explain what happened to Palestinians, to the the Jewish people in in Israel. And we did a, a, a walk, a peace march. We did several when we were there. But he sort of tried to do this as a, a, a trial a, a run, if you will, from the Holocaust Memorial, which is an extraordinarily shocking, grievous, um, difficult place to walk through and see the photos and see the suffering and the grief and the... The loss just unspeakable. Um, and we went, he wanted to meditate there and then to carry pictures of Auschwitz and Buchenwald into the Palestinian refugee camps, um, saying, if you don't understand what happened to the Jewish people, um, you won't understand what's going on here in this country. So we walked, I was at least a good part of this walk from there through the neighborhoods of Jerusalem, you know, and different people would come up. Here's this um, guy in a kafiyah, this Arabic-looking guy, carrying pictures of, of the Holocaust um, through an old Hasidic neighborhood and all these people are coming up and, who is this guy? And what he said, I want to teach this to Palestinians. And then we got up finally to the ba- barrier, to this huge barrier wall. and. We couldn't get through the checkpoint there, but then he talked to some kids and they said, oh, there's a hole in the wall over here. And we kind of all went, (laughs) snuck through the hole in the wall. Um, And when we got on the other side, um, we started to meet a series of people, Palestinians in Ramallah, and we were going to the refugee camp in Kalendia. And um, at first people were very resistant. Why are you doing this? We don't need to hear about this. And then he would quote these verses from the Quran about the mercy of one who sees, with, uh, sees the suffering of another, and how this is the teachings of Allah, to understand one another's suffering. And he didn't talk down to anybody. He was really respectful of their pain. And he said, we have to see everybody's pain. Um, and he was very eloquent and heartfelt and quite humble about it. He said, don't, don't we have to understand the pain of one another? And then he would speak more in this eloquent way of uh, uh, the difficulties everyone had shared. Um, and in five minutes, people who would really were really hostile w- wanted to learn more and were open. Um, and he'd go from one person to another in one place. And it was an interesting group because we had a gypsy um, who was speaking about what happened to the gypsies. We had a couple of Jewish people, a Buddhist, a gypsy, a few Arabs, a bunch of... Uh, uh, some, some Christian leaders, all walking and then stopping and speaking to each person um, as part of our practice of somehow uh, deep listening and wise speech. Um, I met with all kinds of other folks there in the course of this time. I met with uh, the head of the uh, most right-wing fundamentalist party in Israel, who tried to explain to me that God teaches us that we have to hate our enemies and kill them. Um, and I listened for a while, and I, said, and I said, so God wants us to hate people and kill. He said, that's absolutely right, and he gave me chapter and verse. Um, and I was trying to understand him. And it wasn't just that side, it was the other side too. I met Palestinians who said, you know, we, we have to hate our enemies. It was, it, it, it's fundamentalism. Um, and I didn't think I was gonna convince anybody of anything But I simply wanted to be a witness to it all. And then when I went back into the many different peacemaking groups, I said, you know, these are dark times. There are dark times here. There's a lot of suffering. But there are also dark times in other parts of the world. And what I see is that many of you are willing to hold a lamp and a candle in the midst of dark times. And it's such an important thing to be able to do. You know this in your life. You know, when things are really difficult and when we enter dark times what do you do? Do you get lost? Do you feel like, you know, this is the end? Do you give up and despair? Do you get angry and hateful? Or can you go to the place of illumination in yourself? Can you sit quietly and come to what is the deepest values that you have and say even though this is a difficult time to pass through and I see it all the time here in working with people, people who have um, uh, you know a life-threatening illness, people in the middle of a of a a terrible divorce, the, the kind of dark times that we go through what does it mean to carry the lamp of what is our heart's deepest and best values in dark times. And I began to meet people on all these different sides who were doing this. Because the enemy really isn't out there. The enemy, as my teacher said, Ajahn Chah, he said, the enemy is ignorance. The enemy is fear. And when we discover that fear is just a state, it's just a thought, fear is just... I mean, have you ever looked at fear closely in your meditation? There's a body contraction, you know, your breath gets ch- changes and gets more shallow and your, you know, your hands get sweaty and your body will contract in this way. And then there's the whole script, the, the um, audio portion comes on <laughs> and it tells you how bad it's going to be. And the interesting thing about fear is that it's always about the future. It's never what's here and now. What's here and now might be difficult, and it might be quite painful. Um, This is a painful moment. This is a difficult moment. But the fear is always about what hasn't come yet. It's never about what's now. We have a tremendous capacity to be present and bear what's here if we see it clearly. Uh, this is what's so and then the little story comes in and it says yes but you think this is bad you know and then we we get lost in the fear it's that thing that where Mark Twain said my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes most of which never happened right (laughs) we have all the stories about what fear is and then what does it mean just to sit and say this is a fearful fantasy this is a fearful story and here we are, here we are in our human- in this mystery of humanity, which is uns- uh, unbearably beautiful, and at certain times unspeakably difficult. And we are incarnated into this. And one of the things that was amazing in Jerusalem and in all these places was that it's it's sort of the the archetypal nexus of the world koan of problems of how do we have difference. Um, and individuality, and culture, and history that need to be respected, and trauma that has to be tended to in a wise way. And at the same time, how do we have this shared humanity in this mystery? And if it can be solved there, it will be a light for the rest of the world. So um, we led um, this beautiful peace march across Jerusalem around the Old City through the Garden of Gethsemane up to the Mount of Olives with some hundreds of people wearing these white banners Um, and uh, in the midst of the traffic and all the things of the city and again a verse from the Dhammapada where the Buddha says as the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty so let the wise ones wander bringing harm to none and blessings to all and so you wander through the world and bring benefit rather than harm and there was a certain way in which there's been a whole series of these silent walks around Israel and people are kind of used to it now and there were rabbis for human rights who were a part of this group and a whole array of different Arabic and Christian leaders and when we got to the G- Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives, we stopped and did some meditation. And this beautiful sheikh from Nablus talked about his work in um, building bridges um, in the Holy Land. And then we sat in a circle, and one of the elders who was there, I spoke for a while, and this sheikh spoke. We were kind of leading this thing. One of the other elders said, well, what is it that you most deeply long for in this place? And people began to speak. and. You know, someone said, I just long to be able to speak to my neighbors, without, whoever they are, without fear. Um, and then this, this man stood up and he said, I lived, he was an old man, he said, I lived here, I'm um, near the Mount of Olives as a child, right where that, you know, where now where there's all this conflict and where people are afraid of one another. And he said, what I most long for is to wander as I did as a child on this land Um, and feel safe with all the different people that I meet. And we just stopped after he said that because there was this place of our humanity. This is actually how we want to live together. And what would it mean to live in this way? There was a beautiful Bedouin man that I met there, um, a couple of Bedouins, Abdullah and... And they were involved in the in the kind of new age Bedouin movement. Okay, (laughs) there was. In Bedouin tents in Jordan last year, there was a big rainbow gathering in the desert. I'm serious. And all these people came from around the Middle East and Europe to dance and sing and do New Age stuff in Bedouin tents, I tell you. And it was the eco-New Age Bedouin you know, rainbow gathering. So so don't think it's only happening in the Bay Area. (laughs) So again from the Dhammapada, The perfumes of sandalwood, rosebay, and jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue and the wise heart travels even beyond the wind to the farthest ends of the world. Um, Live in joy, live in peace, even among those who hate, even among those who are afflicted. Live in the sweet joy of the way, it says in the Dhammapada. And I began to meet people who, in the midst of circumstances that were difficult, Israelis who were, you know, had been in the army or had been drafted or were in a place where there'd been a lot of conflict, saying, "I, I don't want to live in a way that creates further conflict." Um, Palestinians um, devoted. There was a beautiful woman named Ipsy which means smile in Arabic, and she was one of the heads of um, a women's movement. <coughs> between the Arabs and Israelis. She'd also run for town council or town mayor, and that was a little difficult in her particular community because the sheikhs and the imams didn't like the fact that a woman wanted to be the head of things. You know how that is around the world here. Um, um, But she was so gracious and good-hearted and so forth. She said, it doesn't matter. I'm simply going to plant these good seeds and something beautiful will grow of it. And that was really the feeling, in I mean, I could go on with many, many stories, but the feeling was that underneath all the hullabaloo and the conflict and the politics of it, um, that the vast majority of um, people I encountered um, had good hearts and wanted to understand one another and wanted their children to grow up in a way that was safe, one of the things that we want, um, that everybody wants for their children. Um, And it just came out in a whole variety of different ways. I went to a gathering where there were a hundred Israeli teenagers and Palestinian teenagers. It was an Israeli kibbutz that had been founded as a peace village. Um, And for two years the teenagers had been meeting and this was the day when they brought their parents together for the first time. And here were a group of Palestinians who hadn't been in the Israeli side for 20 years. These women were saying, the only Israelis I've met in the last 20 years are soldiers. Even though it's 20 minutes away, this huge wall. And now I meet mothers who have children who are friends of my children. And Israeli parents who say, oh, I'm so glad to meet you. And the teenagers ran it. They said, we want our parents to see what we've learned from one another. And there is this sense that we have when we sit in meditation as well, that we can either be limited by the past or we can find within ourselves a kind of freedom. Yes, our fears and pain and all of the things from the past will come, and you can bow to them and name them. This is pain, and this is trauma, and this is fear, and so forth. But there's a sense of freedom and (laughs) good-heartedness, compassion, that's big enough to hold it all, and going along the the big wall that's being built, you know, between the Israeli and Palestinian side, um, especially on the Palestinian side, it's full of graffiti. The, the Israeli side too, and some of it's political graffiti. Somebody, you know, wrote in big letters, "Stanford University, it's time to divest" or something like that. You know this, um, but the the amazing image is there was a huge picture of a peace dove with a um, olive branch in its mouth, wearing a flak jacket, you know, going through the difficulty with a little flak jacket on, saying, I'm still here, and I'm still carrying the olive branch. Or there was a, one part of the wall, there was this escalator that was painted on it with children on it, as if they could go up over the wall and come down the other side easily, even though the adults were making the wall. The children, as they do, were, were crossing the wall. I gave a talk in Jerusalem for, excuse me, in Tel Aviv for about a thousand people because there's a very large um, meditation and Dharma community there. Um, Part of what happens, and a lot of young people, part of what happens is that in Israel almost everyone has to go into the army and the draft and so forth and so people will go into the army for a couple of years um, and then when they get out the young people, half of them go to India I think it's sort of the anti-army. It's the way of getting, releasing what happened of being a soldier. And so there's this enormous number of young people who are coming back from India having practiced yoga or meditation and being seeds in the society uh, of looking for another way of patience and simplicity um, and um, an ecological sensibility and a bridge building um, between people and Stephen Folder, who is this wonderful friend that runs the Dharma community there. I worked with, the, with them and with the, the Dharma teachers and so forth. They had been leading peace walks all around Israel and Palestine for the last 10 or 15 years. And they kind of got discouraged. And then this was kind of a lot of energy to start doing things all over again. Um, let me see this, this passage, maybe the last one that I'll read to you, where it says, um, Are you quiet? Quiet your body, quiet your mind, live in love. By your own attention, awaken yourself and live with joy, like the moon come out from behind the clouds and shine. All these kind of simple verses of poetry. Um, It snowed when I was there, it was very cold in Jerusalem long underwear country. Really, it was. Um, and it was luminous to see snow on all these churches, and mosques, and temples, and ancient places, and so forth. Um, and it stopped everything. It got. So, I was in Bethlehem, and it snowed. And it was a beautiful thing to walk at the the Church of the Nativity. And there's a, 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 a beautiful maternity hospital that was built, I think, by some combination of the Lutherans and maybe the... The uh, Catholic Church as well, um, right? Not not that far from the Church of the Nativity. That's open to all, anyone who needs. However poor you are, anyone who needs help. All the Palestinian women um, with labor and delivery. And it seemed like such a beautiful and hopeful sign. And the people there were such good-hearted folks. Um, There is a way if we take time in our lives to come and sit as we did this evening in the beginning for our. 35 minutes of meditation or a day of practice or a walk in the beautiful springtime hills of Marin or by the ocean where we just stop and Let our minds quiet down a bit and listen and sense how deeply connected we are with the spring that's coming on this earth and with the mystery of our humanity and with this web of goodness that's not necessarily reported in the news but is there at every traffic light when all these cars stop on the red to let all the green, cars on the green go. It happens everywhere in, a, in 100,000 moments in each day. Um, and I see meditation in that way not so much as making yourself something or getting something or becoming something, as really a returning Sometimes it's difficult at first, because we sit and the tensions of the body and the fears that we carry arise, and the, the struggles, and they need to be met with a great deal of compassion, with a bow, Yes, here's the struggle, and here's our suffering, and here are our fears, and here's the difference with one another, or our conflict. But somehow in the midst of it is this deep silence that surrounds us that brings the flowers back the quince that's flowering in the hillsides. And the flowering starts in ourselves. And what I was able to say to a lot of the groups that I met with um, is you're not alone. You know, one of the hardest things when you're going through a dark time is feeling that nobody understands. And I've been working this last year to help Um, organize a a number of um, demonstrations, if you will, um, in support of the monks and nuns of Burma. And we've had them all around the city and are planning some others. And part of it's for ourselves, but part of it also is to get the images back to the people of Burma. Um, And we do. We invite the media. The um, Japanese or Chinese television stations will come. Radio-free Burma will come. The Norwegians have a satellite that broadcast in Burmese in Southeast Asia and so forth and the images get snuck in there even though the media is sort of shut down through the internet through the satellite people carry things back in and now I've been hearing from friends in Burma back we know you're doing this and we don't feel so alone because it's the worst thing to feel that nobody knows what you're going through we all need this sense of Sangha and community so deeply and what I felt able to do there was to say to the people that I met with you know you're not you're not alone there are a 500 other groups who are doing the same thing here and they are part of this net that is worldwide um, and it was so heartening for them just to be seen and to be honored and to be recognized So, hmm. I guess I just wanted to come back and offer this alternative view of the Middle East to you. Um, because it's not just the Middle East, you know, it's all the kinds of conflicts in the world. Um, in one way we can focus on them and they need our care and our attention but in another way we need to find that still center in ourselves the place of wholeness and connectedness and peace and live from that in our lives and because we are not separate from them how we live affects everybody else in this world Um, and of course Um, It allows us to live in a way that is uh, truer, wiser, deeper, and in the best way happier. This is not the way I usually come on Monday night to teach. Usually it's a series of Buddhist teachings. Um... I hope that these reminders have some spark of light, something that's uh, useful to your own life. Um, I'm grateful for your listening. I'm grateful to be able to tell these stories. Um, And I'm really grateful for this place that we can come together as we do um, in the midst of our busy lives. Um, So let's just sit for a moment. As Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh has said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. May you find the place of centeredness, And calm in your own heart. Carry that light and that lamp for yourself and all those you touch. Thank you. And thank you for your generosity and support at Spirit Rock. And um, see you again, perhaps. Diana and Paul need a ride to San, Franc- uh, to San Rafael. Anyone who can give a ride to San Rafael, to two people? Raise your hand if you can. OK, so come up, Diana and Paul here, and meet um, Nidal up here, and you'll get your ride.